Good morning from WKYT News. I'm Bill Bryant and we welcome you to Kentucky Newsmakers and hope you're enjoying your weekend. As we get into what may be an exciting political year in Kentucky, we're meeting some of the candidates out there looking for votes. Lexington Mayor Linda Gorton is facing three challengers for the city's top job. Councilman David Kloiber was with us last week. William Wayman failed to make it out of the 2018 primary and Adrian Wallace, who is with us today on Kentucky Newsmakers. Mr. Wallace has an interesting background, including military service, running a community foundation, heading up the Lexington chapter of the NAACP. He made a strong run for council at large in 2018. He's also the only candidate for mayor who previously ran for a national office. We'll ask him about that. Wallace was a candidate for vice president in 2020. So we have an interesting conversation ahead with candidate for Lexington Mayor Adrian Wallace and we welcome you. Thanks for coming in. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You're just arriving after the ballot draw. You I, found out uh, where you'll be on the ballot in I, I, May. Uh, number two, so hopefully all of Lexington uh, goes to the second <laughs> position and votes for me. <laughs> what do you want people, first of all, to know about your background and, and, and what brought you to this moment uh, running for Lexington mayor? Yeah, well, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting. So my uh, great-grandfather, um, or my yeah, great-grandfather came to Lexington in 1954. Uh, he moved my family from Cincinnati after having moved them out of the coal mines of Harlan, Kentucky in West Virginia. Um, and he moved to Cincinnati to work in the radio because he didn't want his boys to have to grow up working in coal mines. And so uh, through radio, they came to Lexington in 54. Uh, and it's really an interesting history because this is, you have your merged, uh, or the urban service boundary for the first time coming to Lexington and so much an IBM. So Lexington is just really changing. Um, and through that, uh, he was on the radio uh, and then went to Barney Miller's and got FM radios, handed them out in the, in the community and just uh, really got involved. And through that, he got involved in politics uh, and, and through ministry. Uh, and so it's really been in my blood, something that I didn't expect to happen. So that's uh, Edgar, right? Uh, this was actually my great grandfather was uh, Cal. Cal, okay. Theodore okay. Calvin Wallace. Gotcha. All yeah. right. Well, interesting. Yeah. And so, and then after him, then my uncle Edgar uh, okay. was on the commission actually to merge the, the, right. the right. government in the 70s and then ran it large. He was actually the first African American to run it large uh, uh, once the merged government was completed. And then, of course, he served on council and district. Uh, so, long story short, <laughs> Being born and raised here in Lexington, uh, being involved in ministry, seeing the needs of the community. Um, after getting out of the military, I decided that I wanted to jump in and, and, and really help make a difference. And so you come to this race uh, not without some political experience, having run for the council at large in 18, and then this vice presidential yeah, run yeah. in 2020. That's of all the things, right? That's what I feel like well, you ran right? for vice president. Right. So, uh, long story short, there as yeah. well, uh, I was not happy with the way that the Democratic Party primary went uh, in 2019, 2020. Uh, there are a lot of articles. If you go back and look at Axios and some of the other uh, statistics, the majority of the candidates or all of the candidates of color, all of the minority candidates combined could not raise as much money as the top three to five white candidates. Uh, I had a friend in Mark Charles, uh, Native American man, gentleman, served on the board for the CCDA, the Christian Community Development Association, and I knew that he was running. And he decided to run as an independent because he knew he'd be shut out by party politics. And it's the reason why I am a proud Democrat. I love that we're nonpartisan in Lexington because we can get to the issues. Mark Charles is a person who could have led this country based on issues, foundational level issues, uh, things that no other president has ever addressed. I knew it was a tall task and politically not expedient for me uh, to first of all run his campaign. He hired me to be his campaign manager. 
uh, we uh, looked for a vice president that had some good bona fides, and he decided that he thought my bona fides were the best of the, the, the candidates that we were looking at, so he asked me to put my name next to his. And uh, I'd do it again because I believe in him, and I believe that he needs to lead uh, at some point. Uh, and so we'll, we'll see how it shakes out for Mark. All right. Well, there's the interesting background. Well, let's talk about <laughs> what you want to do. Uh, let's talk about some uh, issues facing the city right now. The homicide rate in Lexington uh, set records in both 20 and 2021. Yeah. Uh, the shootings have continued into this year, uh, certainly as we know. Uh, what is going on out there? What yeah. can a mayor do to try to get uh, some control of that? Yeah, well, it starts in the mayor's office. Um, when we look at a community, a community uh, has a, a local government that it submits itself to, it pays its tax dollars and says that we have certain uh, expectations of our city uh, government, our local leaders. And uh, one of the top priorities is public safety. We see that, we hear it from every candidate. Public safety, public safety. It's, it's the reason we spend the majority of our city's budget uh, on public safety, because we have to keep our citizens safe. The issue is we're attacking the issue the wrong way. The last three chiefs of police that I've worked with will all agree that by the time it gets to calling 911, it's too late. Uh, the, the current administration has a new program that we might talk about here in a little bit, but it's not enough. Uh, we, we, we discuss th this issue from a public health standpoint. They had to have prevention and intervention. I've worked for the last six, seven years uh, with the JDAI Juvenile Detention Alternative Initiative Steering Committee, and we look at youth having uh, involvement and, and being uh, invited or uh, initiated into the criminal justice system. And the stats show that once they are locked up as a youth between the ages of 10 and 17, that the likelihood of them recidivating as an adult is above 75%. So we have got to keep kids out of lockup. But the problem is uh, we don't have the, the training programs. Our education system's failing. Uh, we don't have the economy to support our youth. And so when we see the, the issues on the front end, that's the reason why uh, we're having issues with our Fayette County Public Schools, with children taking the guns, to weapons to school, because they don't feel safe. It's a community level problem, and it starts with the mayor's office. Well, you've made the glancing reference, obviously, to the one Lexington program that uh, Divine Karama is heading up at this point. Uh, you seem to be saying you think that is a good program, but is uh, woefully insufficient to, to handle the situation. It's one piece of the puzzle. If you look right down the road at Louisville, um, Louisville has been working on a lot of this through their Office of Safe and Healthy Neighborhoods since 2014. Um, Mayor Fisher took uh, President Obama's uh, challenge, the My Brother's Keeper initiative challenge, and that came with a lot of resources, foundation, private, and public uh, partnerships. And um, it has programs like One Lexington, but it's not enough. It's the reason why Build for years has asked for uh, this National Safe Neighborhoods to come in and help us with our homicide rate, to help us with prevention and intervention programs, and we haven't had the leadership that was willing to do it. And so th that's just a few of the things that I want to address, really focusing on public health, prevention and intervention, uh, realizing that our, our, our children are in school for seven hours a day, but they're in the community for 17, and we have got to do more. Um, overall holistically obviously mr wallace that is a long-term approach and you get there uh, eventually if if, if the, you make some improvements in the community but uh these shootings are ongoing right now yeah. we had a situation last week where apparently dozens of people have heard gunfire and didn't report it to police didn't call 911. yeah 
And you have to ask yourself why. And, and, and that goes into a whole lot of the divisiveness that we have, have now with uh, Black Lives Matter on one side and, F, and the FOP on the other. Uh, I happen to be a black man who volunteers with the police department. I'm a, I'm a military veteran. I support our police. Uh, they endorsed me in 2018 for my run for vice mayor, and I hope to have their support again. But I also realize that there's a lot of uh, injustice that is being perpetuated across the, the nation, and that we have uh, officers who have uh, not upheld their duty to protect and serve, and they need to be held accountable. It's about accountability. And a lot of the, the recommendations that I've had for years with the police department have, have been in alignment with uh, the Obama administration's 21st Century Policing Task Force recommendations. And we've done some of those, but we haven't done them all. And so our police have to be equipped and resourced to do their jobs to, to, to curb the violence. But then we also have to, they have to know, the community has to know that they can feel safe enough to call their police department. So uh, community policing is uh, an approach and a buzzword, uh, certainly that, uh, a term that we hear uh, often. Uh, how does Lexington arrive at a better relationship between the police and the community? Yeah, I think it starts with leadership, and I think that that's one of the, the, uh, the strengths that I bring to this campaign, and if elected, that I'll bring to the office, is being able to truly unite our community, uh, bring the resources that the department needs. If the FBI says that we don't have the force strength that we need, then let's get it, get it up to those numbers. Let's make sure that they have the budget and the assets that they need, the resources to properly uh, provide the public safety that they have uh, been hired to do. But then while also uh, resourcing uh, our community for community policing and to work alongside our police department uh, in a way that's healthy and sustainable. You've talked about investing in stressed neighborhoods and mentioned some of the federal money that is uh, available right now and that you would like to see some of that directed uh, uh, toward uh, some of those neighborhoods. What would you invest in? Uh, so it's a, it's a big question. It's a big, it's big work. And as you, you said, a lot of the, the things that I'm suggesting are long term. The problem is you have politicians come every four years running for an office and they want quick fixes. They want things that are going to get them political points. It's the reason why I say I'm not a politician, I'm a public servant. I, I'm in ministry, I, I served in the military, I'm, I'm here uh, serving through different boards for no pay, right? I'm doing this because I believe in people. We've got to invest in people and people will transform places. So the people, the police department is made up of people, real people with families that live in Lexington, right? We've got to support them just like we have to support the families that feel like maybe they can't call the police. We have to address the reasons and the concerns, the reason uh, that, that people feel as though it's black lives versus blue lives. In those neighborhoods, uh, what is it that the that city government uh, can do to, to relieve some of the, uh, the, the pressures? Gentrification is obviously uh, an issue in, mm -hmm. in some areas where property is bought up and improved and yeah. others uh, have a difficulty uh, remaining in the area based on property values and so mm -hmm. on. So uh, community development, it's a great, great point. When you're looking at community development, gentrification isn't necessarily a bad thing. You want property values to rise. You want uh, more density and diversity. You want uh, crime levels to decrease. But what you don't want and what we have to fight and be very intentional about fighting is the displacement that comes along with gentrification. And that again starts with city leadership. We can create partnerships because it's been done. I'm not talking about reinventing the wheel. I'm looking at places like San Francisco and the Tenderloin neighborhood where uh, nonprofit organizations, uh, for-profits that, that uh, are people of goodwill and the city government came together in the 70s and said we have uh, a population growth issue, we have an affordability issue, and we need to buy up certain properties to make sure that we can protect affordable housing. It's the work that Community Ventures is doing now in the East End. It's the work that needs to be duplicated and multiplied, uh, multiplied across the city. Another candidate, uh, Councilman Kloiber, said last week that uh, he fears Lexington risks having an affluency bar uh, where the people would have to have a, a certain standard of living in order to, to 
reside in the city. Absolutely. Uh, do you share that concern? Absolutely. I mean, I, I've told and shared with folks throughout this, uh, getting my signatures and starting this campaign, that if I, uh, if my perspective and my leadership isn't uh, at City Hall over the next four years, I don't know that my family will be able to afford to live in this city uh, come the next go-round. Uh, we have folks that make $90,000 a year right now that can't rent property. And this has been exacerbated by the pandemic because you have landlords who couldn't collect rent for over a year and a half, maybe two years. Um, so now they have to be a lot more careful about who it is that they rent to. You have uh, conglomerates coming into places like Lexington and uh, Airbnb, you know, and I'm, and I'm not against that. It's good for the local economy. But the problem is, is we have a limited housing stock. We already have very... Uh, uh, a lack of affordable housing or an issue with a housing affordability and now you have this compounded on top of it and so what we have got to have is proactive innovative leadership in the mayor's office and that we just haven't had that how important do you think it is that lexington uh, uh, operate as a partner within the region that there that this entire region of half a million people yeah. in central kentucky uh, if not speak with one voice, at least cooperate more. It's absolutely uh, imperative, especially when we think about the fact that so much of our workforce lives outside of our city now. In 2017, there was a Fayette County housing demand study done, and over 50% of our workforce lives outside of the city. And the top two reasons that they said they live outside of Lexington was because of for, uh, affordable housing, housing affordability, and infrastructure. Those are issues, again, that the mayor has got to address, uh, and they haven't been. For far too long, since I ran the first time, far too many politicians say, well, at least we get the occupation tax. So they, they work here, we're getting the, the tax dollars away from them, but they can go to some other city. And that's just not how I want to feel about the folks who want to call Lexington home. The people who work here typically want to live here, but they find it more affordable, more feasible to leave our city limits, our county line, because they can have, uh, they can actually afford to live. Some folks maybe because it's a bigger house. Others, I, I, I fear, are going to be priced out of the ability to live inside of Lexington. So as you go about trying to uh, create more housing, maybe more affordable housing in the area, you know, it, it seems that there's been a tendency over the last 30 years or so to retreat back to the preservation versus development debate, and people, you know, get on either side of that, and 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 there's not a lot of room for compromise. Yeah. Uh, would you have a different uh, approach to that? No, you know, I, I think um, I'm a marketing guy, and both sides were very intentional and intelligent to say smart growth, right? We, we want to grow eventually, somehow. So then we can debate about w what that uh, factor is, right? What's the trigger, as they say? What's the trigger for growth, expanding the boundary? Uh, what, what my thing is, is it comes back to people. How do we have just, equitable decisions that uh, make sure our people, our citizens of Lexington, can have a decent quality of life, that they can live, work, and play in Lexington? Um, and be able to have a, an asset and home and home ownership that they can pass on to their families. Uh, that's the most important piece. Lexington mayors have often faced crisis situations, and some of them very, very early in their terms. Uh, uh, mayor Teresa Isaac had to deal with a crippling ice storm just a few weeks after she assumed office. Mayor Gorton has dealt with this pandemic for a lot of this term that she's been in office. How prepared are you to deal with a crisis situation? Yeah, that's a great question. And a lot of folks say you're too young or you haven't held an elective office. Um, I think the key is is that I've been willing to serve uh, from, from my military leadership, our service, in which I was uh, promoted to sergeant. I was a recruiter, worked full-time, um, deployed to Baghdad and led soldiers. Uh, I think my leadership ability through the military and now through nonprofit organizations, the various nonprofits that I work with, uh, makes me prepared to, to lead on day one. 
uh, not only lead in, on day one under normal circumstances, but I'm ready to attack any challenges uh, that, that might arise. We do have the pandemic of COVID. I don't think that it's been handled well. I think that our economy is suffering. I think our uh, affordable housing uh, stock has went down because of how we've handled it locally. And uh, I think that we have got to have more forward thinking leadership in City Hall. How off track do you think Lexington is? I think Lexington's a great city and we have a lot of great opportunities. But I do think that we're going in a dangerous direction in which a lot of folks won't be able to afford to live here, um, that our economy is going to be hurt not only by the pandemic and, and the fallout from that, but also from the homicide rates. You just look at Chicago, um, tourism is going to be hurt. A lot of times folks say, well, the, the homicides are only, it's people that they know or it's drug related, uh, it's gang related. It's not just that. And it's spilling over into our downtown as it is now. Um, and it's going to hurt our economy. So it hurts everybody, and it's, it's uh, imperative that we address the issue now. To what extent do you uh, plan to shake this race up? Well, you know, uh, I, I realize that it's always hard to unseat an incumbent mayor. Uh, I realize that I won't have the money that some of my other candidates, uh, uh, the opponents, will have. Um, but the message will be heard. Uh, and I believe that it will resonate with our voters. And I believe that, uh, that, that we'll be able to win because it's, it's needed. And I think that the voters and the citizens of Lexington realize that, um, that when others portray a message that we're doing great, a lot of other people realize that it's hard to keep the lights on, put milk on the table, or keep a table to put the milk on in the first place. Adrian Wallace, candidate for Lexington Mayor, thanks for coming by. I appreciate, appreciate it. Thank you so much for having much. me. Stay with us. We'll be back on Kentucky Newsmakers in a moment. U.S. Senator Mitch McConnell has been in the state and been busy the last few days, and we'll take a look at some of what he has been uh, going to look at. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. It has been a busy week for Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. The senator spent a few days touring areas that were hit hard by those December tornadoes. Senator McConnell said the state and federal governments are doing great work together to get those communities back to normal. And WKYT's Phil Pendleton recaps the senator's visit at the Emergency Operations Center in Frankfurt. Shaking hands and posing for pictures, Mitch McConnell had high praise for those on the front lines of the disaster response from the Boone Center in Frankfurt. It's an extremely impressive collection of agencies skillfully coordinating all the various aspects of relief. McConnell met with emergency managers who say the job now is to make sure everyone has a place to live. I think the largest challenge right now is sheltering. Um, FEMA has a direct housing uh, program that they're rolling out. McConnell noted how quickly state and federal leaders began working on the response, and he says politics is not getting in the way of both sides doing the right thing. Yeah, I, I have no criticism of the president's response or the governor. McConnell left the EOC to meet with House and Senate leaders here at the state capitol. How to best spend billions of dollars in infrastructure money was high on their priority list. He says they'll focus on the I-69 bridge in Henderson and the Brent Spence Bridge in Covington. Regretfully, I was one of only two members of the Kentucky delegation that voted for it, but I thought the $5 billion was important for us. McConnell says while he was originally against the rescue plan adopted last year, he said some of that money could be reprogrammed to assist with recovery efforts. In Frankfurt, Phil Pendleton, WKYT. 
The emergency management director, Dossett, says the governor's office is also working to make sure that money in the Team Western Kentucky Fund is going directly to the people who were in the tornado-impacted areas. The Senate Minority Leader was in Bowling Green Wednesday afternoon. He stopped by a FEMA recovery center there. The senator talked about relief efforts with FEMA and community leaders. Congressman Brett Guthrie, who represents the Bowling Green area, was also there. And the politicians talked about some of the challenges for people there to get federal help. Senator McConnell emphasizes the importance of long-term help for Kentucky. The challenge after the new wears off of the disaster is to stay with it until you get back. And with the housing issues that uh, the judge was talking about, this isn't going to happen overnight. We need to stick with these people until they're back in uh, appropriate accommodations. The group also discussed temporary housing. FEMA is now helping tornado survivors with rent. The problem is the Bowling Green area doesn't have many rental property options available right now. Officials are still working on a solution for that. And the senior senator was also in Taylor County this week. Senator McConnell visited a food distribution site. He said FEMA and state officials have been responsive to the needs in the communities hit. Senator McConnell said more eyes need to be on Kentucky to make sure that there is help for families going forward. And while on those stops, the senior senator also was asked to weigh in on some big issues in Washington, including the upcoming empty seat on the U.S. Supreme Court and the growing tensions between Russia and Ukraine. The United States has been working to try to de-escalate tensions on the Russia-Ukraine border, even as the administration plans for a worst-case scenario. 8,500 American troops are on high alert. President Biden has had classified briefings for House and Senate leadership. Here are Senator McConnell's comments on that issue. Um, I think the situation with regard to the Russians and the possibility of an invasion of Ukraine is extremely serious. Um, my advice to the White House uh, from the very beginning was that whatever steps we are going to take, and I'll outline the steps that I think ought to be taken, need to be taken before an invasion, not afterwards. Senator McConnell went on to say that he was encouraged that the president and his team were prepared to take further steps. He also recommended deploying NATO troops and some American troops to Poland, Romania, and to the Baltics. We'll continue to monitor the situation. We'll have the latest for you on WKYT News and on WKYT.com. Now, another big headline in Washington of the week, a U.S. Supreme Court justice is hanging up his robe. Justice Stephen Breyer is retiring after serving more than two decades on the high court. The 83-year-old has been a consistent liberal vote on the court since he was sworn into office in 1994. He was nominated to the bench by then-President Bill Clinton. Breyer is expected to stay on until the end of the term and until Congress confirms his replacement. His retirement would give President Biden a chance to nominate a new liberal voice to the court for the first time since Justice Elena Kagan was sworn in back in 2010. During his campaign, President Biden vowed to appoint a black female to the bench if a seat opened up on the high court, and he reiterated that this week. Senator McConnell was asked about that, about Breyer's retirement while he was in Bowling Green, and here's part of what he had to say. Well, I'm afraid to put the cart before the horse. Uh, Justice uh, Breyer has not yet made an official announcement. He's entitled to do that whenever he chooses to. Uh, and when he does that, I'll have a, 
response to his long and distinguished career. And again, shortly after that, uh, Justice Breyer did make it official that he does plan to retire. Stay with us. We'll be back with Greta Van Susteren on WKYT's Kentucky Newsmakers. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers. Glad you're here. The world's most powerful space telescope is in position. But what is its mission and what do experts expect for it to reveal? Our chief national political analyst, Greta Van Susteren, explains. Hello, I'm Greta Van Susteren, and here's your full-court fast break. NASA announcing it is one step closer to uncovering the mysteries of the universe. This week, roughly one month after takeoff, the James Webb Space Telescope reaching its intended destination. The observatory now in orbit beyond the moon, nearly one million miles away from Earth. This $10 billion telescope is 100 times more powerful than the famous Hubble Space Telescope. And while the Hubble orbits Earth, the Webb Telescope is orbiting the sun and will give us Earthlings unprecedented views of the universe. NASA says Webb's infrared scans will study distant lights, revealing the first stars in ancient galaxies. The telescope's technology will penetrate dust clouds, revealing the processes of planet formations and star births. Webb will also photograph planets outside our solar system and study their atmospheres. But before all that, the telescope must undergo months of fine-tuning as engineers calibrate the instrument's alignment. Want more Full Court Press? Tune in Sundays. We bring politics home covering the national stories that impact you. And remember that you can catch Full Court Press with Greta Van Susteren this morning at 11.30. It's coming up on WKYT. In the week ahead, we of course will be covering the Kentucky State Legislature as they roll into February, and we'll have the latest on that on our newscast throughout the day. And of course, we will hear from Chris Bailey and the Groundhog this week on weather. It should be an interesting week ahead. That's Kentucky Newsmakers. Thank you for joining us. I'll see you this week on the evening news on WKYT, and you make it a good week ahead.